0: This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything. And periodically, we tell stories about sports. But as you've come to know, they're not just sports stories, any more than those great stories on ESPN, those 30 for 30 stories, or sports stories. We're going to spend an hour talking about Coach Dean Smith of the University of North Carolina. He passed in 2015, but we are here to remind people of the virtues of this man And stories about this man, if you aren't a coach, you'll still want to listen. If you run a business, if you run a family, if you have any influence at all in your life with other people, you're going to want to learn from the very best about how to lead. And that's what Dean Smith was. He was a leader, he was a teacher, and of course, he was a coach. His basketball bloodlines ran as deep as the Carolina blue sky. His coach at the University of Kansas, Fog Allen, learned the game from the man who invented it and after whom basketball's Hall of Fame is named, James Naismith. Winning was also in Dean Smith's bloodline. Under Coach Allen, he was a backup guard on the Kansas team that won the 1952 NCAA title, and he was runner-up the following year. He scored only one point in those two championship games, but it was from the bench sitting near his coach that a sports giant was birthed. He would go on to mentor two of the next generation's great coaches, fellow Hall of Famers Larry Brown and Roy Williams. Great coaching apples, it turns out. Don't fall far from great coaching trees. Dean Smith was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1931. His dad was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. His mom was a teacher too, but it was from his dad that he learned the value of every human being and their potential. Kansas was a highly segregated state at the time, but that didn't stop his dad from putting a black player, Paul Terry, on his team. In the 1933-34 state tournament, Terry was banned from playing by state officials. Rather than hamper that team's performance, it spurred them on. They ended up winning the state title. When Smith was 15, his family moved to Topeka, where he played basketball, football, and baseball in high school and earned an academic scholarship to the University of Kansas. He would go on to coach briefly at Kansas and at the Air Force. And then came the big shot at North Carolina. He was replacing the legendary Frank McGuire, who had led a team to a 32-0 season and an NCAA championship not long before. Things didn't go very well the first year. Here's one of his players on one of the early teams, legendary NBA player and great college player, Billy Cunningham.
1: To say it was difficult times for him is an understatement. He was being hung in effigy, The coaches, everyone was questioning his coaching ability, what he was doing, alumni, students, wasn't very many good things. Matter of fact, I found something from the old Daily Tar Heel, January 13, 1965, and I just took a little portion of it out. It's a quote, yeah, I know Dean has a big job to do, and if he can't keep up with the traditions of the fine Carolina teams, he should start looking for for smaller shoes to fill. And the bottom says, name withheld. I hope he's here tonight. <laughs> and those were tough years for Coach. And
0: Billy Cunningham continues on Dean Smith's early years.
1: You know, they say you learn more from losing than winning. Well, we made sure he got enough of that. And, and uh, one of the things, though, we taught him is humility, number one how could you be a cocky wise guy coaching teams that were 8 and 9, 12 and 12, you know, didn't make it through the ACC tournament, didn't do it, really didn't do very much of anything. So, humility, we got that covered for him. <laughs> Loyalty. It was only the players and his immediate family that would talk to him. I mean, no one had anything to coach Smith. They were all they wanted to do was get someone new in you know coaching and recruiting which it come down to and you saw that there is that he learned that either he changed the style and started coaching in the proper way and went out and got some decent players because he surely was tired of watching us and then that's when things started and obviously he went on to become if not the greatest one of the greatest coaches of all time
0: and by the way, Billy Cunningham was speaking before he sold out Dean Smith Center at the University of North Carolina. This was just days after he died. All the players came back, all the people who knew him and all the kids. The place was just packed, and we're bringing you parts of these speeches to celebrate this great man's life. Up next was retired president of Converse sneakers, Mickey Bell, who happened to be graduating, who happened to be a graduate of the class in 1975, and who said Dean would have hated all of this attention.
2: As I look out over this huge crowd, I can't help but think how Coach Smith would absolutely hate this. As you know, he did not like to be center of attention. He did not want to um, um, be in the spotlight. He was a very humble man, and he would never accept or really understand why people came from all over the country and all over the state to be here to honor him. Yet if anybody deserved a celebration, it was Coach Smith.
0: And Mickey Bell then asked the question rhetorically to the crowd,
2: why me, why am I speaking? When Coach Williams called me last week, he asked, said that he and the family wanted me to speak, I had the same thought that you did when you saw the list of speakers today. Why Mickey Bell? <laughs> well, you see, I was not an All-American. I didn't play in the NBA. My jersey is up there, my number, up in the rafters, but some guy named O'Corn came up and put his name on it. <laughs> Besides, when you look at the other speakers here today, they're all legends. Antoine Jamison, Phil Ford, Eric Montrose. I said, Coach, didn't you want another star to speak here today? And Roy reminded me that Coach Smith gave e- equal treatment to every player, from a walk-on to a superstar. Yes, said, yes Roy said, all the speakers achieved great basketball uh, uh, accomplishments, but everyone thought it'd be great to have someone on the other end of the spectrum to make a presentation. So I said to Roy, let me get this straight. What you really are saying you want a player to speak that had limited talent limited scoring ability, was slow, couldn't really jump, played a little, and contributed some. Is that right? And Roy said, yes. And I said, well, I'm your man.
0: And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Mickey Bell, from Phil Ford, from so many of his great players, and the aforementioned Roy Williams. You're hearing his name a lot. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life of Dean Smith here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the life of Dean Smith. We're celebrating his life, and we're hearing from so many of the people who knew him, from great players to not-so-great players, as you're about to hear from Mickey Bell, who continues to talk about all the debts of gratitude he owed this great coach.
2: Besides, how could I say no? Coach Smith never said no to any of requests I ever made from him. Well, I, I'll take that back. When I was a senior, I went up to Coach Smith and I said, Coach, when we go in the four corners, do you think I should be the one in the middle of the four corners handling the ball instead of fill Ford? And I remember his answer, he just said, no. <laughs> like you over last week, I have been reading and listening to all the tributes to Coach Smith. They've made me smile, they've made me reflect, and yes, they've made me cry. But I'm so pleased that through these tributes, Coach Smith is now understood by everyone around the world of how great he was. Over the years, my friends who never met Coach sometimes would come up to me and say, Mickey, was he that good? What was so special about him? And that really is an impossible thing to answer completely. For how do I explain that yes, he was a great coach, but he was even a better person? How do I explain to someone that his life was guided by principles and he never, ever wavered from them? Yes, we all have things we believe in, but how many of you can say that you never waver from them? How do you explain to someone how he made all that played for him a man, someone who challenged us every day to get better on the court and off the court, he coached you to be a better basketball player for four years. He coached you to be a man for a lifetime. How do I explain to someone all the life lessons he taught us while we were here? Lessons like the power of his positive words. He was the most positive man I ever met. He was always encouraging you. Now, he could get mad. Uh, I think all the players here knew that when that whistle blew hard, he clapped his hands together and said, get on the line, we'll get something accomplished today. We were in trouble. But he was all, always positive. It was always when we make the free throw, not if we make the free throw. When we steal the ball versus if we steal the ball. The class to Coach Smith was always half full. How do I explain to someone that everything he did was with dignity and class. He never talked about winning, only improving. He never embarrassed a player. He was both a humble winner and a gracious loser. He never uttered a single cuss word while I was at Carolina. And believe me, my play deserved a couple of cuss words. (laughs) How about explaining to someone the lesson of loyalty? You saw that every year during senior day. No matter the opponent, no matter how highly ranked they were, or no matter how important the game was, the seniors were going to start. His principle of loyalty far exceeded his goal of winning. How do I explain to someone the lesson that little things do matter? Did you fully touch the line in sprints? Did you help your teammate up once he dove on the floor? Are you on time? I look at every player right here that played for him, they're all nodding their heads, because we knew that on time the Coach Smith meant five minutes early. And his lesson there was that there was no shortcuts in the game, just like there's no shortcuts in life. He always said little things equate to huge success. How do I explain the lessons of preparation leads to calmness? Duke game down eight, 17 seconds. All these stories you've heard were true. I was in the huddle. I'm leaning over his left shoulder. He says, we're in great shape. (laughs) We got him right where we want him. (laughs) Isn't this fun? (laughs) Because you see, we had prepared or practiced so much for late game situations. He was totally calm and positive. His calmness against adversity is something I try to do even today. How do I explain the life lessons that family and friends are the most important? There's a special bond among all the Carolina basketball family. We might be generations apart, yet we know we were part of something very special. And we have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Other Other schools have tried to emulate what Coach Smith created, but there is only one Carolina. When my son was born, I received a handwritten note congratulating me on the birth of my son, Michael. Now, I'd been out of school for many, many years. I didn't call him. I didn't tell him the name of my son. Yet he took the time out to write me a note congratulating me on his birth. And when I marveled at this later when I saw him, his response was, Mickey, that's what friends do. Wow. It is well documented how Coach Smith's innovations impacted the game of basketball. The Four Corners, Secondary Break, have all been adopted by coaches both here and abroad. But one of his innovations transcended basketball. It's now seen in all team sports. That, that innovation is pointing at your teammate after a great play. You saw it on a key play in the recent Super Bowl. Tom Brady throws a pass to the receiver, the receiver jumps up, points back at Brady, and Brady points back at him. It was Coach Smith's way of thanking the player that had just made the pass. Because To Coach Smith, it was all about team and teammate. Just think, that simple gesture epitomized what Coach Smith was all about. If he was here today, as Billy said, he would really not like this uh, praise on him. He would be up here pointing at people. He would say, thank you, players. He would say, thank you, Coach Guthridge. He would say, thank you, students. He would say, thank you, Roy Williams. And I think all of us should thank Roy Williams for keeping the values that Coach Smith created ongoing here in Chapel Hill.
0: And that point to a passer was the biggest deal. No one had ever seen it before. Guys pointing at each other and giving each other credit immediately and spontaneously on a court. People copied the North Carolina way, but it was the North Carolina way. Mickey Bell went on to thank his coach in these final words.
2: For 40 years, every time I saw a coach, he would always say thank you. And I'm not sure what he thought he was thanking me for, but today I want to thank him. I want to thank him for giving a guy with limited talent, remember the guy that couldn't jump, couldn't shoot, couldn't run, a chance to be part of the basketball family. Thank you, Coach. Thank you. And in closing, if if your friends come up to you, if your children, or even if your grandchildren come up and ever ask you, what was Coach Smith like? Simply reply, he was the best. Thank you.
0: And then came up Phil Ford, one of the greatest point guards in college history, ended up coaching at North Carolina. And he started things off with a funny story.
3: It must have been my second or third game, my first year as an assistant coach here back on the staff. And the first two games, I didn't say anything. You know, I was really nervous. I was in awe, you know. But this particular game, I said, you know, I'm going to coach this game. I'm going to help out. So, you know, JR was playing. And we'd come down court. We'd change sides of the court with the ball like we were taught to do, make three or four passes, throw it into Jr. J.R. would kick it out. He'd get a little deeper. We'd kick it back into him. He'd miss a one-foot jump hook. The other team would come down the court, make one pass, guy shoot a three-point shot, and we got a hand in the face, and it went in. So this happened three or four times down the court. And I say I'm a coach a little bit right now. I say, hey, "Coach, you think we ought to call a timeout?" He looks at me with a straight face and says, "What are we going to tell them?" You know, <laughs> we're getting the shots we want to get. They're taking the shots we want them to take. That was my first lesson in coaching right there, I'm telling you. And
0: when we come back, we're going to hear more of these talks. And wait till you hear Roy Williams. It's just worth, it's, it's worth the wait, folks. And by the way, Phil Ford, when he was recruited by Dean Smith, said this in an article right after his death. My mom, when she first met him, thought he was the dean of the school. That's the way Mr. Smith carried himself, like the dean of an academic program. And that more than 95% of his players graduated is a record that would make any college dean proud. When we come back, more on the life of Coach Dean Smith, his story, his players' stories, North Carolina's story, here on our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with the story of Coach Dean Smith and you're going to be hearing more from Phil Ford, other players and of course Coach Roy Williams what a speech he gives, it's worth the wait and all of this happened at the Dean Dome as it's affectionately called on the bucolic beautiful campus at the University of North Carolina where Coach Smith taught young men how to be grown men for decades Phil Ford by the way before we go to another clip and his talk He said this about Coach Smith. He was about the only coach who told me I was not going to start. But my mom sat me down and explained to me that when I was a senior, I could then be assured that Coach Smith wouldn't be promising another high school All-America my starting spot when he was a freshman. And I would never have thought about it that way. Right there and then, Coach Smith was teaching me how to be a man and how to think like one. Back to Phil Ford's speech and he starts to get emotional right about here.
3: Because of my Christian belief, I, I do believe that coach is in a better place right now, uh, especially seeing how he was the last couple of years. But the human side of me, you know, I still want to go by his office. I would go by his home with Mrs. Smith and, and his office with Brent and Ms. Wood, and they would make him smile and You know, I I still want to have lunch with him and I still want to push him out to his van. But uh, I do know one day that I'll see him and I'm really going to miss him. And if there's a model of how we should live our lives, I mean, we need to look no further than coach's life because I'm honored, I'm truly honored to have been to have played for and been an assistant coach to the greatest coach ever. Not basketball. The greatest coach. I'm going to miss a Coach. And next
0: up, and by the way, you're seeing every race and ethnicity, every speech style, every religious type. Up comes this gigantic, tall, skinny, white kid, seven feet tall, outstanding UNC player, Eric Montrose. And these are the words that came to his mind about Coach.
4: Humility conviction, dedication, compassion, loyalty, bravery, and love are a few words which I now know describe Coach Smith. But in 1988, I knew Coach Smith only as a winning coach. When my high school basketball coach said to me, would you be interested in hearing from the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith, my answer was yes. Later that summer, I pulled my truck to a stop in front of the open doors of our gymnasium. And one of my teammates ran out of the gym, into the parking lot, and he said, you'll never believe who's here to watch you play in a pickup game. It's Dean Smith and he's sitting in a rickety old plastic chair in the back corner. (laughs) You see, even in Indiana, a state with their own legendary coach and Bob Knight, Coach Smith evoked emotion and respect. My father remembers early in my recruitment wanting to learn more about Coach Smith, so he and I began to read the book, The Carolina Corporation. It was then that we began to see a sketch of what would later become a deep understanding of Carolina basketball under head coach Dean Smith. In the fall of 1992, I sat with my Tar Heel teammates, many of whom are here today, in the locker room just back here, and we were setting goals for the upcoming season. We came to an agreement at the end of that meeting that our goal would be to end the season in New Orleans. The next day in our locker, and you guys remember this, was an 8 by 10 picture taped in the corner of our mirrors where it stayed all season long. The image in that picture was of the scoreboard inside the New Orleans Superdome. And it said, the University of North Carolina, 1993 National Champions. The famed poet Robert Frost said, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Upon Coach Smith's passing, ESPN's Marty Smith used that quote to describe Coach Smith as the afternoon, and so many others, including his opposing coaches, the morning. Coach Smith has had a profound effect on our lives. For many of us, and for many of you, the first thing we think of is a magical comeback, a championship, or a victory over a rival. But more impressive than those on-court achievements is the indelible mark he has left upon society. As a respected leader in the community, he stood tall for what he knew was right and garnered respect because of it. He's long been lauded for his efforts but was shy to receive this attention because to him it seemed like the only morally correct stance to take. And however great his passion was towards the game that he loved, it was displayed tenfold to us as his players. He brought the fight for desegregation to college sports and used the game of basketball as a vehicle to carry the message, a faith-based message of humanity, onto a national stage. Coach Smith delivered this message publicly, but his message was not for show. He administered it to us as players as well. He mandated that unless he had a letter from our parents excusing us that we be in a place of worship once a week. He encouraged us to find something we were passionate about outside of the game of basketball and to share the same dedication we had for our sport with that cause. There was a recognition that basketball was not what should wholly define our lives. And for many of us, that way of thinking has been embraced. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Junior said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Among many of the off-court experiences designed to give us a broader sense of appreciation for the opportunities we had, was a trip to Butner Prison, where we practiced in front of some of the most forgotten individuals in our society. Numerous trips to children's hospitals also brought us face to face with the very spirit that made our sport so popular, and increased our awareness that the world was not made up entirely of individuals as fortunate as we were. A familiar thought for the day used by Coach Smith is the serenity prayer from theologian and fellow Medal of Freedom winner, Reinhold Niebuhr. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Leaders are unique in how they convey their beliefs. Coach Smith, he led with courage and wisdom and by example giving all of us the opportunity to focus the lens through which we looked at life.
0: You're not gonna hear many NBA and college athletes sound like that, folks, and that's coming straight from a father figure and coach named Dean Smith. And when we come back, we're gonna hear from Coach Roy Williams. And by the way, Smith won the Medal of Freedom in 2013, and not many coaches win that kind of an award. The man who brought up so many young men and turned them into men. The legend, the coach, the man. Dean Smith's story, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, the final segment in this hour-long celebration of one of the great men, one of the great coaches, one of the great teachers in American life, and we love to celebrate teachers, and the best coaches are just that. Listen to our Bear Bryant Hour, our Vince Lombardi Hour, they're startling, and what you can learn as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a school leader, as a church leader, well, it's all there, folks. Listen to the way these young men talk 30, 40 years after playing for them, it's as if it was yesterday. And they still maintain relationships. By the way, Michael Jordan said this. Other than my parents, no one had a bigger influence on my life than him. He was more than a coach. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my second father. And by the way, this man racked up 879 wins, a 776 winning percentage, 17 ACC championships. And boy, that's tough. That is the tough basketball conference. And of course, two national championships. But here's why he's really remembered. It ain't the wins, folks. And now the man who played as JV player for Coach Smith went to Kansas, then came back to North Carolina, current coach
5: Roy Williams. If you ever hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Dean said this, you know it's a lie. Because I've never referred to him anything other than Coach Smith. If you hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Bill Guthridge, that Bill did this, that's a lie too because he's always been Coach Cuthridge. And Coach Smith used to say, he'd call and he'd say, Coach Williams, Dean Smith. i said, Coach, how you doing? (laughs) We're partners playing some good golf matches, and I'd always call him Coach. And he'd say, you can call me Dean. I said, no, sir, I can't. And I never have. No,
0: sir, I can't. Here's Roy Williams talking about something that startled him as a young
5: player. And it had to do with where Coach Smith took his players to practice. I even dreamed of Coach Smith last night. Gospel truth. I hope I never hit another golf ball if that's a lie. So Coach knows I'm telling the truth. But some of the things about Coach Smith and one thing I thought of when it was said something about Coach taking him to Butner and practicing. It's one of the times I disagreed with Coach Smith. He took one of the teams when I was here to the state prison, maximum security prison. Everybody there had at least two life sentences. And they closed that door, that gate, and it is a scary feeling. And we're in there and we're doing a little clinic and everybody's having a good time and Coach says, well, let's scrimmage those guys. Okay. (laughs) And he looks at me and he says, Coach, you referee. (laughs) Now, there's some players here that remember that. I said, Coach, you think I'm calling a foul on one of those guys? You are crazy. (laughs) And that was the truth. I didn't call a single foul. And not a lot of coaches are
0: taking their boys to prisons to scrimmage, folks. Dean was always teaching. Roy Williams says here, With Dean Smith, with Coach Smith, the players were always first.
5: The other thing I remembered last night about Coach Smith is he always wanted to make sure that you guys knew you were first, more important than anybody else. And I've tried to do that for 27 years as a head coach. One day I was talking to a player, and I have a rule when a player's in the office, nobody interrupts. And if somebody calls, I don't take the call. And Jennifer Holbrook, who's sitting over here, was my secretary at that time. I've got a player in the office, and she opened the door and stuck her head in, and I looked, and I said, what? Because you just don't do that. And she said, former President Bush is on the phone. (laughs) I said, would you please tell him we'll call him back? true story so when the player and myself when we were finished and the player left I walked out and I said was that really President Bush or somebody like Mickey Bell you know and she said no the Secret Service called first and I said Well, will see if you can get him on the line and so she got him on the line and I talked to him and he wanted to see if he could get two tickets to the next game Swear to goodness. So, two or three years ago, the Final Four was in Houston, and they honored President Bush. And Jimmy Nance was the MC, and Jimmy got up and told that story about Coach Roy Williams wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> and President Bush got up and said, The conversation I had with Coach Williams was fantastic because he said his players were more important than anybody. And that came from Coach Smith. And here's Roy Williams talking about the encouraging ethos that Smith drove at North Carolina. I would like to encourage all of you to tell people what they mean to you. At the private service with the family and the letterman, I told them a story that I had never told Coach Smith that I loved him. And I've regretted that. And I've told my players, encourage them to tell people that mean mean something to you, tell them how much they mean to you. Coach Smith knew what he meant to me. I tried to give him a great deal of credit because I told the truth. Everything that I did, I got from him. Now, yesterday, I didn't guard the four corners quite as well as he would have wanted me to. And I look out, and I think Coach Larry Brown, who was one of the first guys to run the four corners, up here is Phil Ford, the best ever, Kenny Smith, Dick Grubar. I tried to give him credit every time I did anything, but I never really told him what he meant. So my players are sitting back there at the back and they know this is the truth. We should all spend time telling people what they truly mean to us. I had a coach one time that said, if you coach a guy 30 years later, and I'm from the South, so guy means go or Gurley the one, so it makes no difference. But if you coach someone that 30 years later, you can still see something that you gave him and to really make sure it's something positive. Every day our lives will show something that Coach Smith gave us. The way we treat people, the way we treat people with respect and dignity, and the way we care, because that's what Coach Smith did.
0: And here's Roy Williams closing things out.
5: We're very fortunate to be here together in a wonderful, wonderful family. The Smith family, I thank you. We love you. Trying to speak on behalf of every one of us. Everybody has negatives. Everybody has pluses. Coach Smith had more pluses than anybody I've ever known. Let's raise our hand and point, and thank him for the assist. Thank you.
0: And again, we're at the Dean Dome. We're taking you there, and this was last year, but we'll play this every year, because great teaching is great teaching, and it's eternal. These themes last forever. Up last, to close out the ceremonies, Dean Smith's pastor, who he was very close to, and that's Reverend Robert Seymour. And he closed out everything with these words.
6: What a wonderful tribute to have this huge crowd here today to honor his memory. But Dean was an extraordinarily humble man. He was known for his humility and giving other people the thanks and attention. And if he could have anticipated this gathering today, I think there's a good chance he might have said, don't do it. But this gathering was not for Dean. This gathering was for us.
0: And it's so true. And by the way, the Reverend then went on to read a little poem that was absolutely beautiful. And I wanted to share one last story that I know about Dean Smith. And it came from a conversation I'd had with a friend. It turns out a country club had been courting Coach Smith. And Coach Smith was very close to John Thompson, who happened to be black. This was in the 1980s. And Dean Smith had a question for that country club. Can I bring Coach Thompson? And they said, well, no. African Americans aren't allowed to play at this club. And he goes, then, with all due respect, I ain't about to join. And he said, and that was the nature and character of Dean Smith. And this was the premier club where all the connected folks were, all the donors were. And he was teaching then, not too long after that club desegregated. His word got out that Dean wasn't going to play there. Always leading, always teaching, trying always to do the right thing. Not a perfect man, no one is. But my goodness, Dean Smith's life celebrated at the Dean Dome will do it every year here. His story, all of his boys' story, in a sense, Chapel Hill's story while he was there. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on the show. And one of our favorite subjects is family. And today you're in for a treat. John and Brody Coyle join us. Both of these guys played for the University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide. And I'm going to put aside our personal differences because we're broadcasting from Ole Miss right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and they're an arch rival. John was the father. He played for Bear Bryant. Back in the 70s, won a national championship, could have gone into the NFL, but he didn't. He started the Big Oak Ranch, and he takes in kids there that their parents don't want or just can't raise. And over the years, well, he's taking care of 2,000 kids. Right now, they're taking care of 140 at the Big Oak Ranch. John Coral's son, well, he was raised at this ranch, and he ended up going to Alabama and being the star quarterback and ended up playing in the NFL. And you won't believe this, young Brody Crowell is now back at that ranch living, even after his NFL career and his really great career as a real estate developer. Thank you guys both for joining us. John, I want to start with you. I want to talk about where you were born, tell us a little bit about your parents and your early life.
7: Uh, i tell you what, I was very, very blessed. I had a great mom and dad. And uh, my dad uh, grew up really tough. As a matter of fact, uh, Brody and I talked and my daughter and my wife about if there had been a Big Oak Ranch for uh, children needing a chance, my dad would have qualified because he just had a dysfunctional family, to say the least. And he looked at me when I was in the little bassinet, and he made a promise to me. He said, I will never miss a game you play. And his dad never saw him play, and he played little – uh, minor league, semi-pro baseball, and uh, his dad never saw him play his whole career. And that being said, uh, he kept his promise with the exception of one time when there was a death in the family and he had to go take care of business. Other than that, he was always there, whether we were in Los Angeles or Dallas or all over the southeast uh, playing for Coach Bryant. Uh, he was always there, and um, they, uh, they loved me. I mean, I, I wish I could make it complicated, but uh, I was their life and they made sure that when everybody else was being stupid that he wasn't going to let me. And um, he was a little old a guy, a 5'11 guy from New York, but uh, I, I was afraid of him. I mean, even when I was a lot bigger than him, uh, he looked at me once, he said, it, it, you know, you're bigger, stronger, faster. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, it don't take big, strong, and fast to pull a trigger. And uh, that kind of cleared the air of confusion. And so uh, I had great parents. I was blessed.
0: And, and your parents instilled certain values, uh, John, in you, I think, deep. Uh, Talk about some of those. Talk about uh, faith in your family and what role that played, what it instilled in you and your life and your choices, John.
7: Uh, My parents carried me to church every weekend. I mean, we we didn't miss a Sunday. And uh, I got to just witness him working, for example, working with youth groups. And I would see my dad take $10 and go buy a kid a glove because that kid's dad wouldn't or couldn't. And I just watched that my whole life, and that's one of the things we talk about as a family is that there's many things I do that now Brody does that we both learn from my dad. And, uh, like, you know, just you know, courtesy, and there's no excuse for rudeness, and there's no substitute for just being courteous to people. Be nice. And uh, that's one of the things I admire about my dad and Brody, too, is uh, I've, I've never seen Brody be rude to anyone that wanted an autograph or a picture. He's always been very kind about that, and we both learned it from my dad.
0: And I would assume that your dad taught you a little bit about work, too, John. Talk about that.
7: (laughs) Yeah. He said, uh, when when I was little, he said, don't do it if you're going to do it half-baked. But he didn't say baked. And uh, we have uh, applied that now to our lives, and uh, that's one thing that's really needed is is when people come to the ranch, they see um, quality. Without extravagance. And uh, we think if you're going to do it, just do it right, build it to last, and because uh, it's going to wear your name and our family's name. And uh, that's one of the things I learned from him, and uh, now our, our grandchildren learn that from their dads.
0: And you had another male role model, and I want to talk briefly about him now, John, for about a minute, and then, Brody, we're going to talk a bit about uh, this role model and this mentor, too. And his name was Bear Bryant. And, John, just for about a, a, a minute or two, Talk about some of the things that you and the boys who played for Bear learned from him off the grid, off the X's and O's, off the football field. Uh, What did you learn from him, and what did he teach you as men?
7: Um, Show your class. Have a plan. Work hard. And uh, when your ribs are cracked and your finger is dislocated, uh, you put it back in place and you keep playing. Uh, There's no room for quitting. And his theory was, if he could make you quit on Tuesday, you would quit on Saturday. And to be honest, Saturday was the easiest day of the week because uh, getting prepared for Saturday. But I think the very first meeting he set the tone. He said, quote, don't show me how good you are. Don't prove to me what you've got. He said, just join us and let's win the national championship. And that was it. And we lost one regular season game in three years. We won the national championship my senior year. And – uh we have just been so very blessed to, to take many of the things he taught us and apply them now with our children and um, uh, mental, mental toughness. I mean, that's missing with a lot of kids today. And, and, and I know Brody's on the phone with us, but uh, he's mentally the toughest man I know. And uh, I have just watched him in his whole career, and I learned a lot of that from my dad and from Coach Bryant.
0: Well, hold that thought, John. And when we come back, more on this remarkable father-son story about male mentorship, and about so much more, this is Lee Habib, John and Brody Croyle for the hour, a remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Corll, and we were talking about male mentorship, we were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. And, John, you had uh, just been talking about Bear Bryant. I remember you telling me a story once about Bear Bryant saying that, in in the end, life comes down to a few key plays. Talk about that, because I think it's so important, not just metaphorically for football, but I think in all of life.
7: You know, Lee, um before every ball game, 36 times I heard him say, in this game there's going to be four or five plays that will determine the outcome of the ball game. You may be the hero, you may be the coach, but rest assured the plays are coming. And there's people listening to the three of us right now. And if I or you or Brody were to say, name five plays that changed your life, every adult can go to those five plays right now with no hesitation. Some are positive, some are negative. But we've all got those plays. And, and for me, uh, just it's just been a series of plays where, and, and I, I hope that you know uh, I come across the right way with this, but God's got a plan for all of us. And if we'll just listen and listen carefully and then follow that plan, everything's going to be just fine. And um, that's one of the things we learned. And, and when I was 19, one of the plays in my life was just meeting a little boy whose mother was a prostitute, and he was the banker and the timekeeper for his mom, and I told that little boy he could become a Christian. He came back the following year and told me word for word what I taught him the summer before, and I realized at 19 I had been given a gift, and I know it is rare to know why you got put on earth at 19, but it just worked out perfectly, and then Coach Bryant was instrumental in getting us to build the home for children, and 2,000 children have benefited from what he and my dad have taught in me.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, when in your, you're in your senior year, here's Coach Bryant, who's legend for sending boys to the NFL, and you have this crisis. You're not sure you want to go to the NFL, and if you do, you're only going for the money because you want to help kids. You want to work at a ranch or something. You have something in your head that says, God's gifted me with this. And talk about that moment with Bear because you're seeking his guidance, John. You're seeking his mentorship, and what happens on that? That I think that's one of the big plays in your life, too. It must be. What does Coach tell you, and what happens next?
7: Uh, very simply put, um, leadership is simple. Uh, you got to know where you're going, and you're able to persuade people to go with you. And he had that in loads. I mean, just dripping out of his nose. And I went to see him. and said, Coach Bryant, I like to get the money from throw football and start a home for children. And he looked at me and did not hesitate. He said, don't play pro ball unless you're willing to marry it. He said, go build that ranch you've been talking about. I walked out of his office and never looked back. And I say this with all humility, Lee, I I have never been depressed. I've been mad, angry, tired, exhausted, filled with anger. I mean, I've been all those, but I've never been depressed because uh, I'm running on the road that he and others have helped build.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting. You you you, you must have left that office thinking, okay, I'm going to start a ranch. How do I do that? How do I do that? And yet, in came, John, in came the love. I mean, in came money for you to support that vision. Some from some local businessmen. Talk about one guy who really stepped up, a guy you played some ball with in Alabama who went on to be, well, in the Hall of Fame.
7: All right, uh, John Hanna, he and I came into Alabama as freshmen, and uh, he is, by many standards, the best offensive lineman to ever play in the NFL. As a matter of fact, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And John had a tremendous career. And um, he and I met just before I was getting ready to get started with the ranch. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm raising support to build this home for children. He said, what? Uh, what do you need? I said, 30. He said, well, that's my bonus for that year in 1974. And he gave us his bonus. And we took that money and started Big Oak Ranch. And uh, he's been a friend for a long time. And he jumped in when a lot of people didn't want to. Um, so... We have just been so very, very blessed. And that first year, we took his money and another friend purchased the land. And I'm literally sitting in the yard, and I just said, "Lord, I'm willing." And uh, that's all God wanted to hear. And the rest is history.
0: Yep, and the rest is history. And and Brody, you know, you grew up uh, around this guy, this this John Crawl. Uh, talk about your dad, and and don't blush, John. And maybe you need to even turn it off for a minute. But Brody, tell <laughs> tell tell the country about your relationship with your dad, you growing up, what did you see? How was your life different than some of the other boys you knew? Tell me about your early life, Brody, and and what what it was like growing up on a ranch like the Big Oak Ranch, which, by the way, folks, is in Gadsden, Alabama, a beautiful place to live.
6: Well, uh, the best way that I know how to explain it is actually a story that goes with my son and the birth of my first son. And I'm sitting there, and he's now five years old, And you know how it is when you have a baby and everybody comes in and they're all excited and they're gushing about how pretty he is and how, which, you know, it's got to be a lot sometimes because there's some newborns that just, man, they just got just a goofy look about them. (laughs) But uh, but mine, of course, was not. But uh, But, uh, he he came in and he was the last one to come in. And uh, he had kind of let everybody else like he does and like he was raised by his dad and uh, we all try and follow suit. you know you let everybody else go first, and you you 're the last one and uh so he was the last one to kind of come in and uh do all that and get to hold his grandson and uh He had something in his pocket, and uh he handed me something and i you know like your dad giving you something for the first time, you know as a first time dad you 're kind of expecting this that or other, and it 's a compass. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, well, all right, Dave. well, thanks for the compass. He goes, you know what it is? I was like, not really. He said, it's called a lensatic compass. And basically what it is, back in World War I, uh, back before all this technology and everything, the commander would call in, and he would call, or the general would call in, and he would tell his captains, all right, I want you to go 110 by 100 degrees north-northeast. I want you to find your mark and you could take that compass and you could lock it in on that mark, and no matter which way you spun, no matter how lost you got, you could always find your true north. And uh, he said, and you get to that spot and you wait for the next instruction. And he said, he said, Bud, you're entering into being a dad. He said, uh, never lose sight of your true north. He said, always understand what your true north is. He said, there's going to be a lot of seasons. There's going to be a long journey. He said, but always stick to your true north and what that true north lies in. He said, and if you do that, he said, I'm going to go to your boy in 18 years. He said, I'm going to go to Sawyer. And I'm going to say, Sawyer, who's the godliest man that you know? And he said, buddy, if you stay to that true north, he said, he's going to look me dead in the eyes and he's going to say, my daddy's the godliest man that I know. And I tell you that story to tell you that... uh My dad is the godliest man that I know, and it is because he always stuck to his true north. It is because he never wavered. He was always the same man every single day, and I always tell people the best way to learn is to watch, and I got to literally watch the best, and he and my mom live it every single day.
0: That's a beautiful story, Brody, and you grew up on the ranch, didn't you? Talk about that. You're around all these kids, and now you've got to be, in a sense, the true north to them, don't you? Uh,
6: You know what? growing up uh i was just one of the boys and that's i literally went straight from the hospital to the ranch Yep, it was the only wife that i ever knew and those were my brothers and those were my sisters at the girls ranch and they were no different than me the only difference is that i had my real mom and dad and my, my parents raised me to look at it that way and i now live at the ranch with my two boys and they have 70 brothers that live here with them and 70 sisters at the girls ranch and they're looking at it the exact same way and you know what that is a uh, that's a great perspective that um you know our my parents instilled in me and my sister and our family is that, you know what we're very blessed that uh because we get to see the other side of it and you know, we get to see the parents that didn't want the job we get to see the parents that struggle with different things and can't handle Uh, taking care of their own children. And uh, the awesome, awesome part is that God's called us, that we get to play a small role and get to fill that void and bridge that gap. So uh, all these kids and, you know, the 140 we take care of on a daily basis and the 2,000 that have been here now know what family looks like because God placed a calling on a man's life 43 years ago.
0: Well, what a blessing that you followed in your dad's footsteps. You know, you went into the NFL, Brody, and a lot of guys go into the NFL – and the North Star becomes, well, you know what the North Star becomes for guys in the NFL. Yeah. It's, it's tragic and it's sad. If you don't, if you get that much money that young and that much fame, well, life gets difficult. On the other side, we're going to take a break here. We're going to continue our conversation with Brody and then bring back John because I want to have the story told of how this place, the Big Oak Ranch got formed. And more importantly, how it evolved from a place for boys to a ranch for girls. This is Lee Habib, an extraordinary father-son story, one of my favorites, and we spend a lot of time on the subject, folks. John Croyle, Brody Croyle, for the hour. This is Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and we're back with John and Brody Coyle. And Brody, we were just talking about the NFL. I just, you know, talked a bit about it, and you know, you you were there. You were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. My goodness, as a young man, and and then you find yourself in the NFL. Talk about how important it was to have a dad like you had, and that North Star that you had in your head. And and I believe also this this relationship you had with God. How did that help protect you from many of the Let's just say the trappings that can come with instant fame and a whole lot of cash, Brody. Uh,
6: well, you know, growing up the way that I grew up and growing up grounded the way that I grew up obviously helped. But you know what? Uh, no one is above uh, getting sucked in by that. No one is above uh, the lifestyle that comes with that. And I'm no different, you know, and honestly, I mean, I didn't do a lot of the things and end up in the media and in the news for doing, but you know what, when I was 11 years old, I walked in to uh actually my parents' room and I'd never played one down of organized football. And I walked in, I looked at them, I said, I'm going to play in the NFL And versus telling me, Hey buddy, why don't we worry about making the JV squad or something <laughs> like that? Yeah. They, uh, they said, shoot for the moon, man. Worst case scenario, we'll end up in the stars. And, uh, I'm ashamed to say, to a fault, football became my God at that point in time. Now, don't get me wrong. I could I could say all the right things, and I could do all the right things, and maybe in my mind I thought that I still had my priorities straight. But football became my God. It's all I chased. Uh, and, you know, obviously I've heard something the other day. If God's not first on your list, he's not on your list. So uh, I fell victim to that. And I chased it, and I loved everything that went along with it. But we always talk about, you know, at the ranch, if you know who you are, you know what you are, and you know why you're here, then God will honor that, and you'll, you know why you're put on earth and what your purpose is. And uh, I had a foundation that I always knew what to come back to, and uh, I was blessed. I have a godly wife, and I have a godly family that uh, literally lived it every day and uh, let me watch. And uh, that foundation and that um, uh, just loving spirit and that knowing where you come from. I mean, I've I've had 11 surgeries. I've had three broken vertebras. I've had dislocated ribs. I've had broken ribs. I've had dislocated jaws. I was always too small to play football. I was just too stupid to understand it. Uh, So I always knew. what the other side looked like that a lot of people don't get to see on the glamour part of it. But at the same point in time, every time I'd have a setback, every time I'd have a bump in this journey, that was God obviously getting my attention, saying, hey, shift it back to me, bud. Come on back to me. But there was also where I grew up. I'd sit there and, you know, I'd feel sorry for myself for a little bit. And uh, literally a couple days into it, I could sit there and go, I got six months of rehab. And I got boys and girls that I grew up with. They're literally just trying to put the pieces of their life back together. And it always put it back into perspective for me.
0: Yeah, and we all need it. We, I don't know how anybody – actually, frankly, I don't know how people live without it or get through without it. John, let's go back now. You, a bit, you, you've you approached Bear Bryant. You've gotten this help to start a ranch, but you don't know what, what the heck you're doing. I mean, you you have maybe some vision in your head. Some might say still doesn't. I don't know. (laughs) Some (laughs) might. Some might. So you you stumble out there. How do you find your first kids? What do you do? Tell the story of that first year, that first two, of just getting it going. And and talk about the self-doubt for all the folks out there who have doubts. And I I think it's the most human thing in the world to have doubts. The key is how you fight through those doubts. You have fears. How do you fight through those fears? Talk about all of that if you can, John.
7: To be blunt, uh, we purchased the land, and uh, I was sitting in the front yard with my dog, and that was all we had was a 120-acre ranch, a 1,200-square-foot farmhouse, and within two weeks, we had five boys. We got one out of a box car at a uh, tire company, We got one out of a barn. We got one out of a home in New Orleans. We got one out of a um, home up in Boston, Massachusetts that he set fire to. I mean, we had five boys in two weeks. And one thing I've learned, and and our family believes, attempt something so great for God that it's destined for failure unless he is in it. And based upon that, I was just stupid enough to say, come on, God, let's go. I'm willing. And uh, that first boy is now 61 years old, and he's a grandfather. And um, one one of the things that really worked, and, and I'm going to kind of toss it back a minute, is uh, I looked at my wife the other day, and uh, I said, you know what I told somebody today? And she said, what? I said, somebody asked me what you were like. And she said, what would you tell them? I said, my wife thinks I can do anything. And uh, that kind of support. Is the reason Brody is where he is. You are, I am. Any man that's made it, he's got that that core belief that his mate's right there with him fighting the fight. And uh, my wife has known this. And then Brody's wife jumped in. And the best line I've ever heard my daughter in law say is when he told her he wanted to go back to the ranch. And she said, Tell me when, and I'll have us packed. Wow. Now, how many, how many 22, 23 year old kids? That have been married for you know just a short period of time. Look at their husband. And say, you tell me when I'm in. Wow, that's uh, strong. And as a matter of fact, if anything ever happens to Kelly and Brody, I don't care where he goes. Kelly's coming home with me, <laughs> so uh, it's all good. Now talk about he your means that talk
0: about your bride because here you are. You're on the cusp of. I mean, you could have gone into the NFL. You could have done a lot of things with your life. And you're sitting there with this dream in your head. Talk about you know first sharing that with her. And did she look at you like you were crazy? Um, Did she say, I'm in? Did she have the same faith you had about this vision?
7: Real quickly, um, uh, I asked her to marry me on the boys' ranch, and I said, I love you, will you marry me, and we're going to have 80 boys. She said, let's go through them one at a time. And uh, we went through them again, and uh, she said something about three years ago that just nailed me. Uh, I'd always said, I got chosen to do this, she chose to come do it and she had a choice and uh anyway she looked at me about three years ago she said did it ever cross your mind maybe i was chosen to <laughs> <laughs> i
1: picked up my legs i
7: picked up my heart I busted thing, you know, busted major major busted, <laughs> major that, busted. That was, and uh to be honest i meant uh she she's had every reason just tell me goodbye but uh she's been here 42 years and um We're where we are now because of Brody's
0: mama. But, Brody, let's talk about your mom, uh, because John just talked about his bride. But talk about your mom and the role she's played in your development and how it's helped you in some ways to even choose your wife. Because in the end, if we see what a mom looks like, then this (laughs) informs us when we go to choose our wives.
6: It's just funny you say that. That's why Dad and I both are laughing cuz uh one my mother my mother is just uh I mean when I was growing up just to keep the doors open uh I mean dad would speak you know 300 times a year so I mean he was on the road a lot and uh so my mother is a strong strong woman that uh is just a godly woman that uh she is a calculus teacher and there she won so she's typically smarter than you and everything and then secondly there is no gray you're either right or you're wrong (laughs) so uh there was never any uh talking her into anything you're either right or you're wrong and uh my mother is just a great great woman but we, we both giggled because uh There's so many things, I mean, like all of us, that we grow up and we go, man, I'm definitely not going to marry somebody like that. Like the things that get on your nerves about your mom or your dad, and you're sitting there and going, man, there's no way. I can't wait. And then I married someone who is exactly like her, like carries herself the same way, has the same fiery spirit, the same will put you in your place in a heartbeat. And uh, I honestly, I couldn't be more blessed. And my two little boys couldn't be more blessed because of, The precedent that my mother set and honestly the precedent that uh my wife's family set and uh now my boys get to grow up and have the same uh characteristics in a godly woman and like you said now they understand and they get to look for because they get to watch every day and then one day uh i pray that they marry somebody just like their mama and just like their grandmama because uh those are two great women
0: We're talking to John and Brody Croyle, and when we come back, a final segment with this remarkable father-son team, this remarkable father-son story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Querl, and we were talking about male mentorship. We were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. When we do father-son segments, uh, one of the things we've learned about fatherlessness is not just the impact it has on boys, their propensity Mm -hmm. to join gangs, their propensity for jail, for drug abuse, for violence. uh, And we know why that happens. We're guys, but what happens to women without fathers is a tale that's not told often enough. And so, John, ultimately, you have this uh, big oak ranch for boys. Tell the story that got you to think about something special for those girls.
7: Uh, One of the plays of my life, I was walking down the hallway of a court, and I glanced down, I was walking with a social worker, and uh, there was a little 12-year-old girl sitting there. She had honey blonde hair that was really dirty. And uh, she looked up, and she had beautiful, beautiful, sad green eyes and she had been raped by her father while her mother held her down. And uh, we do what we do for a living, and and our family, we can spot an abused child about a mile away, and uh, that's all we've known. And uh, I just glanced down at her, and um, I I picked her up. And I remember uh, they'd had to do a hysterectomy to to put her back together, and uh, she was just destroyed. And uh, I told the judge, if you send her back home, the father will do it again and kill her in six months. I was wrong. Uh, he did it in three months and killed her. And I promised God that when the time was right, we'd build a home for girls. So there's that anchor in the ground, that stake that will not move. And uh, that's why now we have a 325-acre ranch in Springville, and uh, there's uh, approximately 70 girls living there that are getting a chance at life. And we're trying to explain it. I'm, I'm going to quote Brody on this one when he says, we show girls what a real family and a real mom and dad look like and what a real father figure looks like and uh, that is just so essential and there's women listening to us right now that would give anything they own to have their dad just look at them as they were going up and said you know what you're my princess and you're the most beautiful little girl i've ever seen and i love you they've never heard that and they are literally scarred for life and when they marry it takes a special man to lift them out of that dungeon of uh, self-doubt and self-confidence. And um, that's just what we've seen. And now when I see Brody walk in and a little girl runs up and hugs his neck and he just uh, looks at her and says, As long as we breathe, no one's ever going to ever hurt you like that again. That's a very good day.
0: That's a great day. And, you know, I I have a bride whose mom worked real hard, but she was a single mom and my bride was vulnerable and, and she fell into sexual abuse with a, a man in the family who just took advantage of the opportunity, and it, it cost my wife dearly, and uh, in the end scarred her in ways that you know to this day it, it still lingers. And she talks routinely with young young women about this, and older women about the impact of not having a father present, um, and the sexual abuse part. Uh, the guys, as you well know, because you this is what your life is. The numbers are off the charts. Why do you think it is? What are the women looking for because of that absent father? What do you think's actually going on psychologically with these kids? Brody, you want to take that?
6: The reason that we say, if you hadn't ever seen it, how are you ever going to repeat it? And uh, the thing that is so... It, Dad always told me, he said, the hardest thing you're going to be able to have to do, he says, when a little girl comes up and she thinks... She doesn't even know who God is. We had somebody the other day that was doing a devotion, one of our house dads was doing a devotion with his kids and uh with his and one he's like, Man, I felt like I just I was so prepared and I was so ready and I was ready for this devotion and man he's like I was teaching calculus. And he said we had a new boy and literally I'm halfway through the devotion and the boy looks at me and he goes, Who's Jesus? He's like it was the biggest slap in the face to me because he's like I had no clue. Because I just assumed. And we have girls that go, so this Jesus you're talking about, um, he's everywhere, right? Sure is, baby. He's all. He's got a great plan for everybody's life. Sure does, baby. Well, where was he when my dad was hurting me? And that's a hard, hard question that, honestly, we on this earth probably don't have the answer to. Right. But the best way that I know how to tell you of what God can do and how God can, I mean, he obviously uses us and uses uh, his children as lights for him. And the best way for our kids to understand the love of a father and the love of their creator and the love of their father is to see it through their parents. And unfortunately, mean, we had a little girl that was from time she was five until she was 15. She was raped every single day by her dad. And, that was the life that she knew. And I got to sit there, and I got to look at that little girl, and I got to make her the same four promises that my dad has made for the past 40 years. And I got to look around, and I got to say, baby, I love you. I don't want anything in return. Just give us an opportunity to earn your love back. I said, I'll never lie to you. Anybody sitting in this room, and in that room be me, my sister, my dad, the director, the social worker, the house parent, anybody that's going to have an integral part in her life is going to be in that room. It's like, if anyone in this room lies to you, they're fired on the spot. You understand me. She's like, mm-hmm. I said, we'll stick with you till you're grown. We, this coming fall, we'll have 25 kids in college. And say whatever it is you want to do in life, we want to help you get there. I said, "In four, there's boundaries. Don't cross them. And she went, all right. I said, baby, you get a fifth promise. And Dad said it earlier. And I, I just looked at her, and I said, baby, as long as I breathe, nobody's ever going to hurt you like that again. Do you understand me? And she went, okay. And uh, some kids literally get it instant. Some kids that are abused, especially girls, will just, it's like, here, you take this. Get it off of me. Uh, and they will spill everything just to say, you know, it's off me now, and thank you. Some kids, it takes years. Some kids, we don't ever get to see the fruit. And uh, But you know what? That's okay. And for a year and a half, this girl fought. And, man, she pushed, and she just pushed her house parents to the brink every day, made sure that everything that I had told her was we were going to hold up our end of the bargain because everybody in her life had let her down because she had had that trust muscle ripped out of her so many times by the man that was supposed to protect her. And literally after a year and a half, she went up to her house, Dad, the same man that the first week she was there and they had got through having dinner, she walked up to him and goes, Is this when we go have sex now? Because that's the only life that she had ever known. She finally she told she finally told us, she said, I started to say yes just where it wouldn't hurt so bad where I didn't feel like I was getting raped. And after a year and a half she went up to that same man and she said, I don't know what it is you got she said, but I want it. And they got to share with her how to become a Christian, how to change her life. And why do I tell you that story? Is because he showed her the love of a father. And she finally understood that, you know what, that man that used to do that to me, and that man that used to hurt me, and that man that pushed me to the brain, that man that made me question life and who I was and if I wanted to continue it, now she's gotten a year and a half with a godly man showing her what a father and what a father's love is supposed to look like. And because of that, she's now going to spend eternity in heaven because she now can understand the love of a father in heaven. Uh, that is a good day, and that is uh, what we get to do on a daily basis. And people have said, you know, well, what if y'all would take Christianity in your name? What if they push you to take Christianity your name? And you know what? That day might be coming that they try to push us to do that. And they say, well, you know, we'll take away your 501c3. We'll do that unless y'all have Christian out of your name. You know what? We know that there is no change uh, without God Almighty. And uh, we know there is no change without that Christian thing. We know there is no change without showing the love of a uh, father, which then they can understand what they were put on life for. And uh, unfortunately, the abuse and the... um, Level of abuse and level of sexual abuse is getting worse and worse and worse. Um, But that's what we get to do, and that's the kids that we get to help. And uh, people ask me all the time now, where do you see the ranch going? I say, man, I'd love for us to be out of business in 20 years. That would be amazing. That means no kids are getting hurt. That means no kids are seeing pain. That means no kids are getting raped by their fathers. But unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction. And uh, we will continue to uh, just follow that lead and follow God's lead and uh, continue to offer uh, what he intended for a family to be.
0: Well, and as I told you guys during the break, and Brody, and I thank your dad for this, Um, because of these stories, I had not been a believer. I I had a child, and I needed something more than what my dad taught me. He was not a believer. And uh, ultimately, witnessing the power of love, the inexplicable power, that could have come from no other source. It led me to Christ myself. And, uh, and we don't get that personal on the show. I don't tend to share my own views. But on this one, I, I have no other option. And I just want to thank you, John, for what you did for me, what you've done for all these kids, and, and what you've done uh, for, for, for God, because in the end, you're serving him, doing what you do. And it must have just tickled you, John, to hear your son telling that story.
7: It is. And uh, my wife and I, every morning, we wake up, we pinch ourselves of how blessed we are, and um, I, I, I want to say this to anybody who listen to us. You can't be bad enough that God won't come get you, and you can't run far enough away that his hand is not on the other side trying to pull you back home. So we've all been there, and nobody's got it going on, but the neat thing about it is, Lee, you, me, Brody, our family, we will spend the rest of eternity together, and uh, I saw an atheist I met, and he just well, I don't believe in God. That's okay. He will meet him one day. And so it's all good. And so we're just blessed that you let us be a part of what you're sharing with the nation.
0: Well, thank you guys both. And I'm going to get out and visit you, I promise. And it will happen in the next 30 days. And I look forward to seeing you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sounds great. You thank bet. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, John and Brody Coral. We've had them for the hour. And my goodness, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.